You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni in Yerushalayim. I'm Aprom Kivalevich here in the United States. Dr. Juni, uh, we are still not just reeling from the, uh, the, in the U.S. elections, but what we are doing is processing here in the U.S. Uh, the turn of the country and much of what the media is trumpeting about, uh, start, sorry for using the word Trump, but trumpeting about is the fact that we have finally regained a moral compass here in the United States, that some of the things that are on the agenda, that are on the horizon, represent a great turn for humanity, um, worrying much more and caring more and doing more about climate change, uh, uh, legislating the ability for children and adults to identify as a certain gender based on the right to be an at the person you want to be, to self-actualize. And we are hearing this, uh, among other things, also the adherence to science uh, specifically, uh, especially, as I said before, about climate change and other things. We are finally getting back to what it means to be a great human being as opposed to when the Republicans. Now, I don't want this to be a discussion about politics. What I do think is important is that we are hearing that there are principles, and those principles are are what are, what are now hopefully being embraced, the principles that in some corners are called humanism. Uh, I wouldn't even, they don't even like to say secular humanism anymore. It's more about what it means to really be a human being. And there's a, an element here that religion, terms of its ability to take us back and guide us from a revelatory event, whether it be Sinai or the, uh, Muhammad uh, seeing the angel or Jesus uh, revealing to the apostles, those things are insignificant. And many people have seen in the court cases where religious events are shunted to the back, for example, and again, I, 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 it's a very facile way of, of, of referring to this, but people are saying that if, <clears throat> events like protests for the sake of uh, human rights, r- uh, civil rights, those are things that stand much larger than the ideas of congregating in synagogues, in churches, and in mosques. Those things are considered religious freedoms as, the po- as opposed to be seen as inherently moral and correct. And that is why in, 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 over the summer, especially here in the United States and in New York specifically, we heard this argument being made that people are rising and, and elevating the need to be a moral human being, and that's something which could perhaps push away the mask mandates, and we shouldn't get so worried about people not wearing masks at events that are about promoting human rights. However, it's ridiculous and short-sighted to think that the same sort of things should apply when people want to congregate and appeal to God as a higher power. And all of this, I think, is bringing into perspective, once again, this divide 
between why we do what we do and how we live the way we live and how much of it is based on the inherent moral abilities that or faculties that are part of being a human and what is it that is based on being a servant of a divine commander and how much of what we do is based on what God has of having concepts of values or of right and wrong traditionally has always been linked to a gospel of some sort so it's always been linked to the notion that there are rules or there is a God that sets up our um, imperatives and going along with that is considered right like for instance I remember um, where I grew up um, being um, chased in sexuality was considered morality. Now, with some things were considered theft or whatever, then there was the concept of morality. Morality referred to, to um, sexual conduct that's appropriate, which is kind of interesting. They used to call it morality. And I even this, you know, much younger used to question, why are you calling that morality? Why aren't you calling this morality? What's the notion here? So to throw in some other little points, I know that when you talk about rights of people, rights of human beings, etc., say in the Constitution, it's always linked to God. Based on um, theories by Locke, it, w- it was a social philosophy based on re- a religious maxim. And what we find these days is people are basically um, getting rid of the shackles of religion, but not doing it in a way that they become totally um, amoral. They're doing it in a way to saying, well, religion is almost a crutch, almost kind of a Marxist um, orientation, and that we can try to attain high levels of morality and high levels of humanity without using religion as such. I can tell you, unfortunately, that one of the main proponents of that was Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud very much felt that we can... um, deal with true religion, which he called not neurotic and not addictive, based on just what is. Science was, for him, the ultimate way of humans becoming liberated from these ancient superstitious notions and then become good, nice, fine, human, human beings without religion as such. That's the basic um, topic here, as far as I see it. And I basically address it from two ways. I address it philosophically, which was my first love before I ever got into helping anybody, and also psychiatrically. So uh, if I can just outline two areas that we can talk about. One is the philosophical notion, whether it makes sense at all to speak of a concept of right and wrong without having a transcendent message or dictate or guideline from God to say this is right and this is wrong. Can we speak of right and wrong without such a mandate or in terms of our perspective, can we speak of right and wrong outside of the Torah, tangential to the Torah, maybe even preceding the Torah, uh, according to the, um, uh, um, say, Adaj, Derecheret's Kodmala Torah, which means there are principles around that we adhere to. And if we do that, then our notion is that Torah is a way of refining or narrowing down what everybody is familiar with or maybe something that precedes it, but Torah is codifying it. That's one way of looking at it. 
So that's a philosophical question. And to that philosophical question, I want to add a logical uh, corollary, which is, does it even make sense to refer to right or wrong without referring to a standard that's given? What's right and what's wrong? Does it then dwindle down to something that's totally subjective and has no universal appeal or a universal mandate or even an argument to stand on? Then, of course, what I can talk about with authority is what is the definition of people who don't have a sense of right and wrong from a psychiatric perspective, okay? And generally, it is considered a profound kind of pathology. People who don't have a sense of right and wrong are considered to have defective um, functioning, not socially, but psychiatrically, which is profound in itself. And I know, I would like to just hear from you, I know that there are some basic sources in the Rishonim speaking about moral senses outside of the Torah or preceding the Torah. And I, from my own, like shall we say, childish approach to Chumash, which unfortunately that's how we're all raised, there are indications there as well. And somebody, from the way the others dealt with Hashem, they dealt with the notion that there is a sense of morality. I'm thinking particularly of the uh, the uh, Avraham chastising uh, Moshe and Avraham both you know getting on God's case to saying how can you do that it's not right which is kind of odd if God defines right or wrong how can you have kindness like that so I'd like to hear just your outline of where these these two well not from the the as we call the Rishonim themselves um, and there we get into this question about can we say there's something called uh, moral law moral, natural law, um, and things that, if we look in the Chazal itself, we look in the sources themselves, there are statements that can go either way. There are statements that, 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 that lend themselves to be melded. So what I would say is that you're correct. The Torah, and it's not childish to say that the Torah has uh, uh, a, a, is telling us over and over again to respond to inherently human feelings, whether it means uh, punishing Cain or Cain for murder, whether it means destroying the city of stone, whether it means destroying Ninveh, whether it, and not destroying it at the end, um, whether it means um, uh, uh, you know Moshe's uh, interaction. And, and saving the life of another person, uh, or God saying, I will listen to the cries of the widow and, uh, and how much this means. Throughout uh, the, the Bible, throughout the Torah, and especially in the words of the prophets, we see consistently this idea of it isn't about legislation. In fact, you can be evil and still adhere to the legislative dictates, right? God says, I don't, in Isaiah, Yeshaya, I don't care about your, your chest beating and, and, and the sacrifices. What about freeing your slaves? What about taking care of the downtrodden? And of course, that is one of the reasons why so many people look at, at, the, at the prophetic vision of what God is about is greater than the actual adherence to mitzvahs. In fact, the argument has been made that Jesus 
And uh, what Christianity stands for is really a freedom from the uh, the tribalism and the the uh, adherence to the the details that don't necessarily line up or create a moral great human being. So the Torah itself, I don't think anyone denies, has a as its basis. We, you know what it means to be a person that is not destructive in society. You know what it means that you have to help people who have less than you. You realize that you cannot... Uh, just because you're stronger and bigger, push people around. All of this, as you say, precedes the Torah. And I think, or the Torah, and I think that is is a fact. Where the Middle Ages and and the arguments in the Middle Ages become paramount and and, and important to us is, hmm, is there, do these two elements, what do these two elements tell us? Is it is God somehow only using us because we need to function in a moral way because otherwise society is going to spin out of control? Or are these elements of morality or having a just society truths that are, are, are part of the fabric of creation? I think that, again, these sound like very similar things, but they're very different. Because as we know, some of uh, the, the the philosophers that the Rambam was referring to felt that God's will cannot even be understood at all. And that, all right, God is, is, is all right with what we're doing because he doesn't want us to kill ourselves. But it, one cannot necessarily argue that this is an ultimate good and ought and should. Meaning that if it's not in part of Revelation, you can't necessarily automatically assume more. And I'll tell you, what, I know I'm, I'm, I, the points are things that are not covered, for example, the things that I mentioned before to you, uh, like protecting our planet, like the idea, for example, let's say there would be a, a, an impair, let's say there would be a, a, a ritual law, but it runs counter to destroying the environment. The same way we know when it comes to human life, we shunt to the side laws that threaten human life. Would we also push to the side, alter, squash any sort of laws or things that seem to threaten the planet and the planet's ecology? One could say that it's all the reason why there's this, we know, pikuach nefesh, it isn't because, oh, we discovered in the Torah that human life, <laughs> we knew that human life is, 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 is crucial. Anybody who thought that you die um, for the sake of fulfilling the law was completely, it, it wasn't some invention. The Torah itself puts that at the heart of what it means to be a religious person. Therefore, one could say, well, maybe the same thing is true about saving the planet. And I know that you... Uh, have talked about, have written about that. From a psychological, not psychiatric, not just from a psychological point of view, there is a um, an unspoken understanding that a concept of should exists within 
the functioning of human beings. In other words, the concept of knowing what is happening, what is not happening, reality testing, that's fairly much accepted. But it's also equally accepted among almost everybody that everybody has a concept of should that they carry with them. In other words, there's a sense of um, right and wrong, which seems to be almost as implanted within us as the concept of what's real and when you have to pinch yourself to see whether you're really dreaming. And it's interesting that the, um, the concept of what should or shouldn't be is a concept that, if you think of it linguistically, is a little bit artificial. Because should, let's think of it developmentally, should usually means that there's an or else attached to it. So let's say if you think developmentally about a two-year-old, doesn't have much of a concept of should, but does have the concept that if he or she does X, there will be certain consequences. And then developmentally, it's assumed that after a while, they skip the step of the consequences. They just go right away from the option they're considering to the conclusion that this should not be done. So initially, it was basically, you should not do this if you want to get away unpunished, or you should not do this if you want to get a lollipop. But ultimately, the if gets dropped, only the should stays, and the should kind of becomes an autonomous concept in the psychology of people, which if you examine it analytically, has very little to stand on. Because what you might ask the two-year-old, if he or she were really a verbal philosopher is say, why should you do that? And usually I would say, oh, I forgot to tell you my mom is coming. Or I forgot to tell you something else is going to happen. But when they lose that connection there, the fact that should stays within you is seen by some philosophers as an indication that it's part of our very, shall we say, soul. This is the makeup of human beings. And again, early philosophers saw this as the idea of that you actually have the soul, which is a god-like connection or inspiration. And that definitely is the way the uh, philosophers say in the 17th and 18th century thought. And now what we see here, when we get into irreligious um, moral um, values, I guess, of most of Western society, I believe, I shouldn't say most, at least the intelligentsia of Western society that I'm familiar with, They've emancipated their concepts of imperatives from some kind of God-given law and see it as something that's natural. And I'm not debating that. I'm even ready to um, accept that that function, that should a right function is there in the body, but I am sometimes kind of mystified by why we then lended a certain halo of respectability. Like I can't see somebody coming up with a philosophy um, built around the gag reflex, saying since everybody clearly has a glag, gag reflex or a blinking reflex, that obviously that's an imperative. And that if somehow we were to disconnect the gag reflex and come up with some other way that we not ingest um, harmful materials, or if we come up with a shield on the eyes which obviates the need for blinking, that somehow we're doing something immoral. And yet when it comes to the concept of shoulds, of doing things like protecting the environment, like helping out widows, like being nice to others, there's an assumption in our intelligentsia, at least of Western culture, that it makes sense to elevate that more than just a gut reaction into something that's holy, sacrosanct, um, 
positive in terms of values to the point that it can supplant a transcendental interpretation of religion. So that psychologically I find fascinating. And I'm not at the psychiatry part yet. Um, how does that sit with where you see, the, let's say, the Rishonim's well, interpretation? Well, well, I think that many of the Rishonim understood, especially people like the Rambam, that, that humans operate uh, in different ways. And that, as you say, the intelligentsia, who by definition are usually the minority, need to use methods of pushing the hamon, pushing everyone forward. And I think the same way the Rambam and others knew that it was important to appeal emotionally, sometimes browbeating, sometimes raising the specter of punishment in order for the world to get better, in order for this group to get better. I think that the intelligentsia what they have done is they have hijacked the the sort of scary parts of religion and use them in order to push what they believe is the correct natural moral agenda. So therefore, you know, it, it isn't strange to me to hear that. You know, we know that Chazal understand that ain't Megalan Evelitznuin certain things you don't tell everyone. There isn't, you know, one of the things I know that you, me and you have talked about is the idea of democracy, the idea of everybody being equal. Um, that is something that um, if you really look at the Torah sources, it really isn't there. The Torah knows that there are differences. In fact, Korach's revolution in many ways can be seen, uh, the, the failure of Korach's revolution can be seen, as Rav Salvechik and others have said, as a, as a complete um, debunking of that sort of idea. Meaning, yeah, the, 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 the people up there know that you don't need to, to scare. But we need to scare. We need to morally browbeat. We need to bang the drum and, 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 and tell you how horrible you are if you don't. And we need to sort of use, as you say, put halos and then put devil horns on the other people. Because what that is doing is appealing to some bigger power. Now, even though the people might not believe in that bigger power, but it's still scary. It's scary to be part of cancel culture. It's, it's scary to be canceled. It's scary not to have your job. It's scary to be screamed at and people will throw things at you. Like PETA people will throw blood at you if you're wearing um, fur. All of that, I think, is similar to the religious fervor that – or and, and if you want to be a bi- – if you want to be a, uh, a evolutionary biologist, you could say primitive people created these gods in order to keep – their 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 minions in line, and they created this idea of uh, of 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 existential punishment in order to push those members. All of that, I think, is is still on display, just in a different way. So, yes, to answer what I keep my, my general reaction to what you said is positive. I understand you, but I keep being haunted. There's a saying in the Gemara: "Male mala mara malchus." which means were it not for the fear of a, a government enforcement, people would swallow each other alive. Now, I don't know 
whether that's meant to be a sign of moral weakness or it's a, supposed to be an indication of reality that if there is no enforcement, there is no values, which kind of speaks to the notion that you have to have some kind of transcendent enforcement coming in if you want to have people to internalize morality. So that's one issue. But also at the end, when you were talking about the notion of um, um, morality almost being invented by political force powers, I mean, it takes me back to Thomas Saz, who we've like bandied about here in the past, and that takes me to psychiatry. I mean, it's understood that if you come across someone who has a depraved sense of morality, we consider them psychiatrically impaired. Um, by that notion, um, there are quite a few movers and shakers, let's say uh, leaders of major countries in history who would be considered um, psychiatrically impaired by that notion simply because they don't have the conventional sense of right and wrong. And there the question comes in now, this is not being conceptual, it's just being kind of a political question of do we use then psychiatry as part of the boogeyman to enforce it? Not only if you don't do that, we're going to put you in jail, or if you don't do that, you will be um, uh, socially excluded from the people on the end, but also we will label you as crazy. And if you think of the dramatization of that, those were accusations about communist Russia that they used to deal with dissidents by labeling them as psychiatrically insane. And from their perspective, it made sense. We have to put them away out of society because they are dangerous, because they have no moral sense or what they defined a socialist sense, which was the equivalent, and therefore we can label them. And there we get to kind of, I don't want to call it abuses of power, or basically a cynical approach of all of psychiatry, which was what Thomas says, that was his flag that he waved. So that essentially rounds it up and gets me to my third point. But I still can't say that, let's say, being winked at, so to speak, you're the intelligentsia, we don't have to feed you with these kinds of um, scary situations. You know darn well what's right and wrong. And what I'd like to say to those forces that be, I don't know darn well, because I don't know what I'm tuning into over here. Am I tuning into just quirks or um, conditioning that I've had based on the particular um, um, successes and failures of my upbringing? Or am I tuning into some real moral compass, which we have in us, which is like equivalent to the balance mechanism we have in our ears? Nobody doubts what's up and what's down because the cochlear um, uh, area tells you about it. By the same token, everybody, it's almost to say, you know darn well what's right and wrong. Anything that takes you away from it is a problem. I, I'm reminded like by the, the orientation of Lubavitcher Rebbe. People, I mean, I've seen this a couple of times in his writings where people come and ask him, look, I, I don't believe in many of these things. Should I still go on practicing as a religious zoo? And he said, look, I hear what you're saying, but I am sure that since you have a soul, you know darn well what, he didn't say darn. Okay, the rabbi didn't say darn. But you know if an emiss, what's right and wrong. So if you just go on behaving in the correct moral way, there's no question that your real sense of morality will kick in, okay? That's a nice, neat way of looking at things. I just personally, when I get in touch with my sense of right and wrong, I don't have any kind of self-righteous um, belief, unfortunately, that I'm really touching something rather than touching something that's been conditioned by all these 
forces in society that have been trying to enforce upon me a certain sense of right and wrong. And I can well see somebody growing up in a decadent society where, like in Sodom, I remember those insane ideas they gave us that in Sodom they had a certain bed, and if you came in too long, they would cut your legs off. And if you came in too short, they would have two bounces there that would stretch you. That was their sense of right and wrong. I wish I were convinced that I'm not being just as chauvinistically impaired as they were to say that's right and wrong because the, the easy solution is none of you are right. All of you are just making things up. And again, this is not definitely the view of... example, the one about Stone. Uh, have a power for children that sticks in their head but the image is so powerful that you, as an adult, you come back to it and you realize that this is really not telling you that they stretch people's limbs. But what it means is, is that they, they insisted on a certain uh, ability to conform um, and, and to the point that they, that they strangled your individuality. Now, one of the things that, just to talk about Stone for a second, um, the... Um, if you look in Rabbeinu Yonah and other places, they talk about the incredible wealth that these cities had, the cities that were destroyed on the plain of the uh, of, of wherever that is in, in Israel, uh, where the Dead Sea is. Supposedly, that spot was a spot that was incredibly rich and, and, and wealthy. And the idea of, 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 of conforming meant, look, we've got a great thing here, but the only way we're going to share it, the only way we're going to, going to be part of it is if you are like us and as if you understand where we're coming from. Then you can get into the club. We have something great, but you can't be part of it unless you conform to these rules. Part of the message of Stone and Amora is that you cannot similar to the to the way people look at Migdal Bovel, you cannot put people into this stern box to the point that they can't benefit unless they are restricted to that bed. So that is, to me, a, a, an interpretation which I think sounds very true. And I think that, that in that way, um, you know, Chazal were aware as you get older that you're going to have a much more nuanced uh, view of things. I, I think the area where in our lifetime, and you, you hinted at it before, in the 60s, when you were sowing your wild oats, so to speak, and I was watching, uh, you know, getting my taste of television and movies and understanding the world outside of my European parents. But during the 60s, we know what occurred, which was a new definition of what love and connectedness to a partner were, right? Up until this point, it had been almost assumed even by 19th century and 18th century uh, uh, philosophers of the Enlightenment, you know, that you do have a certain responsibility to a partner that you give to and that it was important. And the idea of monogamy and one a husband, and one wife, those were considered things that were, right? And, and, and there was also an idea that, that was philosophically explained, logically explained, that being involved with many women, being involved in debauchery behavior, although it's very pleasurable, leads to a lack of understanding of who's, of lineage, of, of patrimony. It leads to uh, confusion. It leads to a, uh, a, a corruption of, fa- of what we call family values. Well, that definitely was put on the table in the 60s where, hey, especially once contraceptives were 
developed in a way that could pretty much limit pregnancies, why not? Why not share the love? Why not uh, give love in other places? What is so terrible about it? And I think that it, what really put a, 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 maybe I'm wrong here, uh, I'm t- a sociologist might cry that Kivlevich doesn't know what he's talking about, but I think the AIDS crisis in many ways uh, put a stop to it. In other words, the same way the coronavirus with its deaths um, has, has caused the rethinking of many uh, of what we thought were the right way to go, the AIDS crisis with so many people dying said, you know what, maybe it should be one lover. Maybe you shouldn't spread it out. Maybe there should be this idea of monogamy, homosexual monogamy. That's fine. But so you see that that sometimes the the, the reality, the ugly reality, the brutal reality changes and, and, and we shift back. Go ahead, doctor. What I wanted to say is that I sense just for here a dialectic, which is that the changes happened because the practical repercussions were not there and that the philosophy or theology followed it almost as an afterthought. So you say you were talking about the sexual revolution. So part of what kept um, sexuality in check were the threats of disease or pregnancy or being an outcast. And then as soon as those things were taken care of, they then came up with the liberation a, a behavioral liberation, which brought with it a philosophical liberation, a reassessment saying, so what's wrong? What's wrong with this? Meaning that the only thing that was supposedly wrong uh, was holding it back with the practical repercussions. And then when AIDS come in, and you're very correct that AIDS stopped a lot of this in its tract and caused a backlash, it brought with it a philosophical justification of right and wrong again, which to someone who is not religious in nature, it would um, uh, evoke very much of a cynicism to the entire values here. It sounds like the entire value notion is just some kind of paper packaging or papering over of just some practical if-then um, um, effects. I find that interesting. I also wanted to mention your comment about Sedone, that um, there is a dialectic there that you're raising, having Sodom on one end of ultimate conformity, and supposedly that's being negatively viewed as we should have allow individual um, notions of what's right and what's wrong, I assume. And then you have the biblical imperative, which comes in with a very clear notion of what's right and wrong. So that dialectic is something that to me uh, is always a thorn in the way of understanding morality as such. Is it something that's subjective? Is morality totally relativistic that gives each person the right to define his or own right or wrong, which means it's totally just a vagary of your experience? Or is there something up there which says, no, you have no freedom at all, and we metaphorically, the way you refer to it, we put you in Sodom, saying you better conform or you are not going to live here. You're not going to last here for a moment. So those dialectics, those are issues that you just, I mean, it sounded very well until you raised those points, and then I'm back to square one. I'm back to square yeah. one. Well, what I would say is, again, and this is I'm shooting from the hip here, going back to Stone, and maybe we can you know, put a, um, a punctuation point here. Um, I think that if you look at the verses themselves, where do you see, despite how you know, ugly they were in terms of pushing this conformity, there was one area that they were very weak in, 
right? Remember what Lot says. Lot knows them very well. And he says, hey, leave these people alone. I tell you what I've got. I'll give you my daughters, right? I'll give you my, mm-hmm. my, my... One of the things which I think the story is telling you is that, yeah, they were very strict and you had to be according to the rules, but one of the loopholes in that was the ability to enjoy yourself physically, right? In other words, they had this idea that treating human beings, treating another person's children as sexual playthings, and this was something that somehow, despite the rules, you can't uh, take in a guest, you can't take in somebody from the street unless that person signs a, a loyalty uh, a loyalty pledge and that person looks like us and talks like us hmm however but you know one thing that there's always room for there's always room to have sex there's always room to enjoy ourselves and i think that's part of this message that the rambam and others picked up on that human beings unless they are um if unless they have these religious uh bonds are going to make up what they want in order to fulfill their sexual desires. Chazal say, and I know you you probably love this Chazal, that lay obdu Yisrael Avodazara, One of the reasons why they came up with a, a different religious system was because it allowed the unleashing of all their libido and 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 and, and to do whatever they want. So so I think that that's sort of in a way uh, you know, where rabbis and others view the sexual revolution of the 60s. Nobody could deny that to march against the Vietnam War, to march for civil rights, all the things that the 60s, in a way, were an advancement over the cocoon, the Eisenhower cocoon of the 50s, we would all applaud that. And yet, what was considered the great Okets, the great sting was, yeah, but look what they want. You know, they, you know, this, 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 this free love, and that's what was considered coloring um, and, and, and putting the, the air of negativity towards it. And um, so, so I think that that is just a, uh, a, a, that's it, my friends, for this week. Uh, thanks again, Dr. J, for giving us of your time and wisdom. Be well. Hopefully we'll see you again next week. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.